Hi, this is Dr. Mike Chupp, and you are listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. This week's episode is a presentation that was given during a very special event that our CMDA Board of Trustees and our administration hosted at the end of January at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. The purpose of this event was to formally announce and to celebrate the formation of the new Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. This alliance includes five healthcare organizations that we've all come together to uphold and promote the fundamental principles of Hippocratic Medicine. CMDA is one of those organizations and we're joined in this alliance by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as the American College of Pediatricians, the Catholic Medical Association, and finally, the Coptic Medical Association of North America. We've been praying about and preparing for this cooperative partnership for many years now. It's in direct response to the state of medicine today. It seems to have moved further and further away from Hippocratic principles. Those principles, including protecting the vulnerable at the beginning and end of life, seeking the ultimate good for the patient, both with compassion and moral integrity, and then providing health care with the highest standards of excellence based on medical science. The members of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine affirm that healthcare professionals should never be forced to participate in or refer for therapy that violates our conscience. It is the freedom to care that brought us all together in this alliance. So what a privilege it was to gather with the other founding members of the alliance, along with representatives from the CMDA Board of Trustees and other partners from like-minded organizations as we celebrated and defended the freedom to care. Our keynote speaker for the evening was Dr. Farr Curlin, who was recently honored at the 2022 CMDA National Convention as our Educator of the Year. Dr. Curlin is the Josiah C. Trent Professor of Medical Humanities in the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. He's also the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. Before Farr moved to Duke in 2014, he actually founded and was co-director of the Program on Medicine and Religion at the University of Chicago. At Duke, Dr. Curlin practices hospice and palliative medicine, and he works with colleagues across the university to develop opportunities for education and scholarship at the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. He's authored more than 130 articles and book chapters dealing with the moral and spiritual dimensions of medical practice. His work focuses on the relevance of religious ideas and practices for the doctor-patient relationship, the moral and professional formation of clinicians, and then care for patients at the end of life. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you actually might be already familiar with Dr. Curlin because for over a year and a half, I have been promoting his book, The Way of Medicine. This book articulates and defends an account of medicine and medical ethics meant to challenge the reigning provider of services model. Because of his vast research and experience in this topic, I felt that Dr. Curlin was the perfect speaker for our recent event, 
as we celebrated and affirmed the value of conscience freedoms in healthcare today. His presentation was just too good not to share with all of you, so we recorded it to give our podcast audience a chance to listen in as well today. Let's jump right into Dr. Farkerlin's recent presentation from the Museum of the Bible under the theme, Celebrating and Defending the Freedom to Care. I want us to think together about what we shall do in this Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. The philosopher Alasdair McIntyre famously writes, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? Consider two alternative stories people tell to make sense of why we are here tonight and what we ought to do. According to the first story, which I will call the standard account, once upon a time, almost everyone recognized and affirmed the standards of the medical profession. These standards could be taken for granted. They were evidence-based, consensus-driven, and they called practitioners to put the patient's interest above their own. The medical profession went along well with its providers, unified by their commitment to these standards, until one day something happened. As part of the rise of the religious right, groups of medical providers began to assert their right to balance these professional standards against their personal values, and in some cases to let the personal trump the professional. These providers began to claim a right to follow their own internal compasses without respect to professional standards, and they justified this turn to the personal by appealing to a right of conscience, where conscience refers to the individual's deeply held personal values, often religious values, values that sometimes conflict with their professional obligations. Over the past two generations, these conscientious objectors have grown bolder, trading allegiance to shared professional standards for the freedom to go their own idiosyncratic ways. Some refuse to provide the reproductive care that women need. Some decline life-saving interventions for young people experiencing gender diversity. Some abandon their dying patients, refusing to provide legal and professionally permitted interventions that patients need and that patients autonomously seek to relieve unbearable suffering. Whereas once upon a time, patients could count on medical providers putting the patient's interest above their own, now these providers are putting their personal interests above the well-being of their patients, presuming that the provider's conscience should trump that of the patient. Consistent with the fact that these conscientious objectors tend to be religious, they also tend to focus on maintaining traditional taboos regarding sex and other private matters. As a result, patients face new hurdles in obtaining the standard, evidence-based healthcare services that they should be able to count on, services their professional associations endorse, services their legislatures say they have a right to, services they find important for their own well-being. Now the medical profession cannot make good on its promise to deliver standard evidence-based healthcare services to those who need them. Confusion abounds and patients are suffering unjustly. By way of analogy, it's as if groups of teachers decided all of a sudden that they would no longer grade their students' work because they have personal objections to doing so 
or they invoked a right of conscience to justify refusing to provide standard, evidence-based educational services that their students need. This story, this standard account, as I'm calling it, gives us a, a vision of why we ended up here tonight, while others have ended up organizing to oppose us. And the story prompts particular questions. It prompts the legislator to ask, is these objecting providers freedom of conscience sufficiently important, perhaps for First Amendment reasons, to grant them a carve-out in the way that churches are carved out of federal rules that forbid employers from taking employees' sexuality into account in hiring decisions. The story prompts the leader in a healthcare institution, say a hospital, to ask, does current law give these providers a right to set aside the professional norm of putting the patient first and providing evidence-based medicine according to professional standards? Or are the providers sufficiently powerful or important that the institution needs to accommodate their personal views, whether or not the law requires doing so. If so, how does the institution accommodate dissent while still fulfilling its mission to provide the full range of standard healthcare services to those who need them? The story prompts the dissenting provider to ask, how do I continue to participate in the medical profession to which I thought I was called while protecting my personal integrity? perhaps my integrity as a Christian? How do I exercise my legal rights of conscience so that I can opt out of professional obligations that conflict with my personal values without creating too much ill feeling among my colleagues? How, the provider asks, do I balance my personal and my professional identities? Now, notice how this story, by establishing the standard account, structures the questions asked by the legislator, by the institutional leader, and by the medical provider. But what if this story, despite being the standard account, is false? Consider an alternative, an arrival story. This alternative story begins in the same way. Once upon a time, almost everyone recognized and affirmed the standards of the medical profession. These standards could be taken for granted. They were evidence-based, consensus-driven, and called practitioners to put the patient's interest above their own. The medical profession went along well with its practitioners. Notice I've changed the word from providers to practitioners. Its practitioners unified by their commitment to these standards until one day something happened. Out of the blue, historically speaking, but in another sense quite gradually, the standards of the medical profession began to shift. <clears throat> and a new account of medicine and its standards began to grow in influence. Before the second half of the 20th century, what medicine could do, treat infections, set broken bones, remove diseased organs, help women get through childbirth safely, patch people up after traumatic injuries, and provide basic nursing support, nursing care to those who were ill in hopes they would be restored to health, all of this was embraced as good by Jews, Christians, Muslims, and agnostics alike, by the religious and the irreligious, by liberals, conservatives, by Republicans, Democrats, libertarians. Everyone thought that these practices of medicine were good, and importantly, everyone still does. Put another way, the medical profession held together 
based on a limited but substantive commitment to attend to those who are sick or, are, or who are injured, seeking to preserve and restore their health. But in the second half of the 20th century, the capacities of medical science caught up to the vision of the Enlightenment project, to the zeitgeist that has trained us all to emphasize each individual being freed from the oppressive constraints of archaic traditions and presumptuous authorities, especially religious and other moralizing authorities, so that each individual can become fully his or her authentic self. This modern spirit is characterized by what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the ethics of authenticity, in which each person's primary moral task is to chart their own distinctive path. You be you, right? This is in every single ad campaign. The sociologist Peter Berger noted 50 years ago that this spirit particularly emphasizes crafting one's unique identity through one's sexuality. Whatever the motive, clinicians and medical institutions began to offer interventions that went outside the old consensus. The consensus that the sick and the injured should be cared for using reasonable means in order to restore their health. The increased use of sterilization procedures around the middle of the 20th century, then the oral contraceptive, which was first approved by the FDA in 1960, proved to be watershed events insofar as all of a sudden there were new technologies that millions of Americans wanted that were provided in the same forms, pills, surgeries, and by the same people, doctors, as technologies used for healing. Yet these new technologies were not sought to bring healing from illness or injury, but they were to help individuals structure their lives as they saw fit, each person to live their authentic pathway. Many more technologies have followed. By 1972, Leon Caswell write in an essay that really uh, I think was quite prophetic. He will write, American medicine is not well. Medicine as well as the community which supports it appears to be perplexed regarding its purpose. It is ironic but not accidental that medicine's great technical power should arrive in tandem with great confusion about the standards and goals for guiding its use. When its powers were fewer, its purpose was clearer. As medicine's powers have expanded, the profession increasingly has confronted disagreements about what medicine is, properly understood, and what its professional standards ought to be. Patients and clinicians no longer can take for granted a shared vision of what medical practitioners reasonably profess. On one hand, most clinicians have embraced the new, more expansive commitment to make available the full range of healthcare services, so-called, so that patients can pursue their own well-being according to their own lights. This commitment seems both holistic, it's broad, it's comprehensive, and it seems patient-centered. In it, to respect patients, one must respect patients' choices and facilitate them. On the other hand, pockets of clinicians have resisted this expansion more and less cogently insisting that some of these new healthcare services have little to do with healing, have little to do with the patient's health. Frankly, that even that some of these healthcare services, however popular and safe and legal and efficient, are not required by, and in some cases even contradict, the medical profession to act only in ways that are consistent with the patient's health or conducive to the patient's health. Now, clinicians from both camps 
profess to be committed personally to fulfilling their professional obligations. The first by embracing the more expansive aims of medicine, these new expansive aims, the latter by resisting them. Over the past two generations, those who embrace expanding the aims of medicine have grown bolder. Their new vision of medicine, which I, I and a, my colleague Chris Tolleson call the provider of services model, has gained cultural legitimacy. It's become the new standard account with its corollary story about how we ended up here tonight. Its advocates have grown impatient with those who refuse to get on board, who resist the profession's updated scientific and patient-centered standards. Advocates of the provider of services model gradually have captured the primary institutions of medicine, from the AMA to ACOG to the Association of American Medical Colleges and many, many more organizations. They command the high ground as leaders of academic medical institutions, and they have rewritten these institution standards so that what was formerly forbidden is now permitted, what was formerly left to clinicians' judgment is now insisted upon as a professional standard. Meanwhile, practitioners in the second camp, which includes a disproportionate share of those attending this event, are feeling besieged. They've watched the AMA and the World Medical Association iteratively revise their ethical codes over the decades to go from unequivocally condemning elective abortion to having a policy of neutrality about abortion to affirming that abortion is an essential healthcare service. They see other professional organizations and medical institutions following the same trajectory. Trainees have gotten the message that they must affirm and follow the provider of services model or put their medical futures in jeopardy. I talk to them every year. They keep their heads down, hoping to make it through training morally intact. Practitioners in this camp see policymakers lining up behind the provider of services model. In Illinois, revising the Healthcare Right of Conscience Act so that it no longer really protects practitioners as it once did. In Ontario, uh, requiring clinicians to take positive action to bring about effective referrals for all legal interventions, including euthanasia. In California, insisting that practitioners may not lawfully challenge receive wisdom about the COVID pandemic. They see the top journals, the organs of medical opinion, publishing a steady stream of, of diatribes against practitioners like themselves, practitioners who, it is alleged, impose their own personal values where only professional standards belong. They see that the vision of medicine that inspired them to join the profession is fading, going underground, and they wonder how long they can go on in this work. Now, truth be told, most of those who resent the provider of services model nevertheless have submitted to it in practice. Most act and speak as if they recognize a professional obligation to provide the full range of legal health care services and to set aside their personal judgment in doing so. And rather than challenge this new model openly, they retreat to asserting their legal right of conscience and appealing to their colleagues and institutions for carve-outs from their professional obligations. They sort of defend the personal sphere. Many sense this new standard account of medicine is wrong, but they have forgotten the alternative. Some practitioners, however, refuse to accept their provider of services model. They insist they're not letting their personal values interfere with professional obligations, but instead are personally fulfilling their professional obligations properly understood. And they're doing so in part by resisting corruptions of medicine. They claim they're not asking for new freedoms from old obligations, 
but instead they ask that the old freedom to fulfill the enduring professional obligations be preserved, particularly the obligation never to intentionally harm a patient's health. As a result of this ongoing dispute about what medicine is for and what we can reasonably expect of its practitioners, patients do sometimes face hurdles in obtaining those interventions that medical science makes possible, that the law permits, but which some practitioners believe contradict medicine, properly understood. So although the profession can still make good on its promise to care for anyone who is sick or injured, seeking to preserve and restore their health, it cannot promise that all of its members will cooperate in the full range of legal healthcare services that patients may seek. By way of analogy, our situation is less like teachers refusing to grade their students' work than like teachers refusing to participate in grade inflation, like teachers insisting that they have an enduring obligation to give students an honest appraisal of their work, even if their colleagues have given up doing so. It's less like teachers refusing to provide standard evidence-based educational services that their students need, and more like teachers refusing to teach as true that which they believe is false. So this alternative story, which you will have surmised, I take to be the truer story of how we ended up here tonight, prompts different questions. It prompts the legislator to ask not if practitioners should be granted religious freedom carve-outs from professional obligations they otherwise have, but instead, how to ensure that those who are sick or injured can receive the care they need to return to health while medical practitioners committed to providing such care are not pressured to participate in interventions that contradict that commitment. Put differently, the legislator asks how to preserve the healing professions as professions open to anyone willing to commit themselves to healing. This alternative story prompts the leader in a healthcare institution to ask not how do we accommodate these idiosyncratic personal beliefs that get in the way of standard healthcare, but how do we resist trying to foreclose important interprofessional debates about what good medicine entails? The institutional leader asks not how to accommodate providers' personal rights of conscience, but instead how to ensure that practitioners are free to practice conscientiously free to fulfill the universal obligation to do the good and avoid the evil. The medical practitioner asks not, how do I fulfill my professional obligations while maintaining my personal, perhaps religious integrity, but how do I personally fulfill my professional obligations rightly understood? And how do I do that in a context of dispute about what these obligations entail? The practitioner asks not, how do I balance my personal and professional identities, but how do I, as one person with integrity, fulfill the diverse commitments that make up my vocation, including my profession to heal? Such practitioners ask not for personal carve-outs from their professional obligations, but instead for what this event calls the freedom to care as they should. So in light of these two alternative stories, what shall we do together? in this alliance for Hippocratic medicine. It seems to me that we have two tasks. First, remember and reclaim the story of which we are a part. This involves speaking truthfully to ourselves, to one another, to our colleagues, and to our patients about what medicine is for and what medical practitioners reasonably profess. 
Speaking truthfully means rejecting the standard narrative. We have to steadily, civilly, and patiently remind those we encounter that we are not against medical practitioners fulfilling their professional obligations. That's nonsense. We are committed to fulfilling our professional obligations properly understood. We are not pitting our good against the patient's good. We are insisting on acting only in ways that are consistent with the patient's good. As best we can tell it, we want to practice good medicine. We're committed to doing so. We're not claiming that our judgment trumps the patient's judgment, much less that our conscience trumps the patient's conscience, if that were even possible. It turns out it's not, a subject of another conversation. We are claiming that patient and physician must each act according to their best judgment. Each must act conscientiously. We're not appealing to conscience as a way of avoiding professional scrutiny. It's not a get out of jail card. On the contrary, we invite the scrutiny. We welcome the debate about what medicine is for and what its practitioners reasonably profess. Bring that on. That's a debate we believe we can win. And we're willing to, willing to encounter those who think otherwise. So that's the first task. Remember and reclaim the story of which we are a part, a story of being committed to attending to those who are sick or injured, seeking to preserve and restore their health with all our best, our energy, our best judgment, with the resources that are, that are reasonably available. Second task is to demonstrate a better way, to not just tell, but also to show. Now, many of you here tonight are Christians. We're in the Museum of the Bible. Recall that the earlier followers of Jesus were called the way. They confronted the ancient world, not merely with a set of arguments and propositions, but with a pattern of life, a way of life, that demonstrated the power and the beauty of what they proclaimed. And they invited anyone to join them. They weren't a closed circle. Anybody could come in and join the way. They invited them to taste and see. Hippocratic medicine was a way. It was a pattern of practice with internal standards constituting a visible community of practitioners that could be compared to the other alternatives available in the ancient world. It took time, but Hippocratic medicine, we know of it today because it became recognized as a better way, particularly when that tradition found in Judaism and Christianity and later in Islam, found a vision of the dignity of the human person, a God-given dignity that made sense of medical practitioners caring for all who are sick. Similarly, it's incumbent on the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine to demonstrate peaceably, patiently, persistently, what their colleagues and patients are capable of recognizing as true, that medicine is for healing. As Donna put it, medicine is for healing. It's not a complicated idea. I've never met anyone who finds that a strange idea. It's incumbent on the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine to invite their colleagues and patients to taste and see if this way of Hippocratic medicine doesn't better correspond to what patients genuinely need and what practitioners genuinely aspire to be and do. Reclaiming the story of which we are a part and demonstrating a better way, these go hand in hand. Again, we show and we tell. We commit ourselves to practicing medicine with integrity and we make ourselves ready to give an answer peaceably to anyone who asks why we practice as we do. What is it you guys are up to? Help me understand. And in this pattern of committing and then explaining, 
were falling in the long tradition. Those who would practice Hippocratic medicine began by taking an oath. They began by committing. And this was not a secret oath. It was a public profession of what the practitioner commits to. Later, the Christian community would revise the Hippocratic oath into what came to be known as the oath insofar as a Christian may swear it, changing the swearing to Apollo and Escalapius and so on, Hygieia and Panacea and so on, of course, but also being clear that we would teach this, this art to anyone who, who wanted to learn it. It, wasn't a, it was even making the art even more open. Over the centuries, Maimonides, Ibn Sina, Thomas Percival, the American Medical Association through its initial code of medical ethics, the World Medical Association through the Declaration of Geneva, all of these and others embraced and explained the standards of a, of a profession to which they already were committed, a profession to heal and never to harm. Today, it falls to us and to others of goodwill to take up the mantle of preserving medicine's orientation to healing of clarifying the profession's boundaries in order to preserve it as a profession worthy of practitioner's devotion and patient's trust. And in this task, we should be of good cheer. Things may look dim in the short term, but in the long term, as Ambassador Brownback put it, truth has a way of breaking through. The provider of services model and the story that gives rise to it exhausts, it demoralizes, it fragments, and it contradicts itself. It turns practitioners into mere providers. It turns healers into interchangeable members of a vast healthcare bureaucracy. It turns patients into mere consumers, bodies into machines. It erodes patient trust and practitioner morale. Almost no one practices medicine consistently according to the provider of services model. In the long run, this model cannot hold. Moreover, my experience proves that even those who today may seem like enemies, people who write withering criticisms of these conscientious objectors, if you can get them in conversation, when they understand what we really are up to, they regard it with respect. That's my experience, even if it's sometimes a bit grudging respect. I remember several years ago speaking before the President's Council, at that time chaired by Edmund Pellegrino, on this topic of conscientious refusals. And I was speaking in defense of them, of course. There were a couple of other folks speaking in critique of them, one of whom, a quite withering critique, after we spoke, we were kind of behind the, we were, you know, I can't remember where we were, but we were after the, 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 the uh, formal session. And I was talking to this colleague, and in about five minutes, it became clear that this colleague was seeing what we were doing is one is saying we don't have to we don't actually have to care for patients if we have a personal obligation to doing so. And when I said, "Well, Howard, what what if what if the concern is that what the patient is asking of us we believe is not actually good medicine for them? What what if we think it's our professional standards that are that are leading us to refuse to go along with what's asked of them?" He said, "Oh, well, I mean, I respect that. I respect that." You know, if, if, it's, if you're committed to the fulfilling your, your obligations, but you don't think this, you're obliged to do this, well, we have to give some space for you to, you know, to, to exercise that judgment. I've, I have had that experience a number of times, which shows how you know, words matter and how we can get grooved into our political camps and actually lose touch with each other. I recently was in, in uh, England, 
and sought out a couple of colleagues there who have been pretty trenchant critics of conscientious refusals. Uh, I mean, one witheringly so. And I sought them out to have lunch with them to get to understand them. And what I found was in these conversations, after an initial sort of feeling each other out, once these, these folks came to see our motivation and what it is that we're proposing and what our commitments are, their whole posture seemed to change. They seem to treat this with, treat me and treat this project uh, with respect. So let's talk to colleagues with confidence, looking to reason with them. Let's appeal with them to what we share. We share a commitment to care for the sick without respect of their characteristics. That's something doctors can all get behind. And when our colleagues see that, we embrace that commitment, they, they will find it easier to acknowledge that caring for the sick does not mean doing whatever someone believes is good for them. Now, in honor of being here in our nation's capital and so close to the Lincoln Memorial, I'm gonna paraphrase uh, some memorable words from his second inaugural address. Given in a time of terrible division over the State of the Union, when, as Lincoln was quite uh, quick to say, it was not at all clear that the Union would hold. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, Let's strive to finish the work we're in. In this case, in our case, patiently insisting on and determinedly exercising the freedom to care. Thank you. Well, as I listened again to Dr. Curlin's talk, I kept being reminded about an article that we recently published in CMDA Today, which is our quarterly magazine. The article was written by Dr. Margaret Cottle from the Spring 2022 edition and was entitled, Professional, Not Provider, Please. It was her plea for those of us in healthcare to reconsider using the word provider. We are not healthcare providers, we are healthcare professionals. It may seem to you like a petty thing, like a small distinction, but it is permeating the moral and ethical issues of healthcare in today's environment. If you want to give it a read, along with other editions of our magazine, just visit cmda.org slash cmda today. If you haven't read Dr. Farkerlin's book, The Way of Medicine, which he co-wrote with Dr. Christopher Tollefson, well, I think now is the time to do so. In this book, they ask the questions, what is medicine? And what is it for? What does it mean to be a good doctor? Answers to these questions are essential both to the practice of medicine as well as to understanding the moral norms that shape that practice. Honestly, this is my favorite biblically consistent philosophy of medicine book, and so I've given out so many copies as gifts to other physicians. You can purchase your copy today in our CMDA bookstore by going to cmda.org bookstore. I also hope, friends, that you'll check out the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School, which Dr. Curlin is co-director of at Duke University. The TMC Fellowship offers an immersive one- or two-year residential experience as it equips participants for a lifetime of wise and faithful healing work. The fellowship is open to current and future students and practitioners in any of the health professions. 
as well as to others whose vocations involve full-time work in health-related contexts, for example, public health workers or chaplains or hospital administrators. If you'd like more information, just visit tmc.divinity.duke.edu, or you can find a link to that site in our show notes. And if you want to learn more about how you can incorporate your faith into your healing work with patients, just keep listening for this special announcement. Those of us who serve in the healthcare professions have the best opportunities to point individuals toward Christ. One of our big priorities here at CMDA is to help train healthcare professionals to integrate their faith into their practice of healthcare. That's why we produce faith prescriptions. This on-demand video series will teach you to share your faith in ethical and appropriate ways with colleagues and patients. And it would also teach you to pray with patients and much, much more. To get started with the series, which is free to CMDA members, visit the CMDA Learning Center at cmda.org learning. You know, protecting your conscience freedoms in healthcare is of utmost importance to us at CMDA. Over the years, we've engaged in several different court cases that focus on protecting your healthcare right of conscience. And late last year, we actually celebrated a great victory in federal court. You know, back in 2016, the federal government issued a transgender mandate as part of the Affordable Care Act and tried to apply it to virtually every healthcare professional nationwide. The requirement would have forced you as a healthcare worker to perform these procedures or provide prescriptions for any patient, including children, even if the therapy, according to their professional medical judgment and their conscientious practice of medicine, would be harmful. Over the course of six years, we were very much engaged in a case protesting that mandate And you've more than likely heard me talk about it before. We celebrated a final victory, praise God, in this case, in November 2022 with a permanent injunction that the current administration chose not to appeal. Because of this victory, our CMDA members are now protected from being forced to perform gender transition procedures or even abortions against their conscience and best medical judgment. And we have now set a national precedent and we are ensured that we can continue to provide the best and safest care to our patients. We are most grateful to Beckett Law for their legal expertise since 2016. If you'd like more information, just visit cmda.org slash transgender mandate. Court cases like the one I've just described, they show the true importance of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine and the importance of being a member of an organization just like CMDA so that you are afforded these protections. If you want more information about the Alliance, visit allianceforhippocraticmedicine.org. And for more information about CMDA's ongoing work in which we are protecting your conscience freedoms federally and in your individual state, you can contact our advocacy team by emailing advocacy at cmda.org. Well, next week, I will be back with a powerful presentation from Mr. Luke Goodrich. He's the vice president and senior counsel at Beckett, and he represented us at CMDA in that transgender mandate case that I just talked about. 
You definitely don't want to miss what he has to say. Please don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a future guest for the podcast, and I've had some suggestions coming my way just this week, you can email us at cmdamatters at cmda.org. And if you like our podcast and listen regularly, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and share us on your favorite social media platform. Hearing from Dr. Farr Herland today about contending to protect conscience in healthcare reminded me of one of my favorite slogans. Maybe you've heard me say it on the program before, and it guides us as Hippocratic physicians. We will take care of anyone, anytime, anywhere, but not just anything we are asked to do, and our conscience as we care for our patients is informed by evidence that stands the test of time, by our experience in practice over time, and by ethics grounded in the Word of God, which is true for all time. Remember, friends, we are bringing the hope and healing of Christ to our world. That's what matters to CMDA, and CMDA matters. God willing, we'll be back here with you next week. This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.